Welcome to The Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello. This week, your Banker Midweek editors are Liz Lumley and Anita Hauser. We are back. We're back, Anita. We are. People just can't get enough of us. I know. We have we have a lot to talk about this edition. So normally on the Banker Midweek, we start off with some stories that are live on the Banker website, and then we move on to developing news that will influence our coverage of the banking sector in the coming weeks. Because after all, you know, people come to the Banker for our in-depth coverage and our quality comments on trends and technology and regulations, you know, name it. We We've been doing this for 97 years. We know what we're doing. Um, so, however, there are some weeks when breaking news analysis commentary merges into one perfect journalistic storm. And so our banker army, I think we are in that week. Weeks? Anita, I think we're in that week. Yeah, I think. <laughs> you know, I'm looking forward to see what, what backroom deals are brokered this weekend. <laughs> It's always on the weekend. It's so much fun. Um, so, yeah, so I wanted to start off. We, we were going to start off with all the bank failures that have dominated the headlines this week. So we did at the banker some initial coverage, um, you know, starting with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, um, as well as the ongoing drama of the shotgun wedding between UBS and Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse made a very fetching bride, by the way. So there's a quote from your story, Anita, uh, that that was on the site last week about Silicon Valley collapse and, and the Credit Suisse lifeline that I think sums up this this new era that we're in. This is going to be 2023. The party is over. We drank a lot and had a good time, but some of us are going to wake up with a really bad hangover. So it, it hit home for me, someone who took COVID lockdown as an, as an excuse to sit and drink a lot of wine on my sofa. Um, but I think they're talking about something else. What's going on, Anita? What are you working on? What are we going to see? What are your thoughts? <laughs> this is a metaphor. Obviously, there was a lot of drinking going on over the last few years of the pandemic. But the um, the person I spoke to who actually made that quote was talking about the low interest rate environment, mm-hmm. which we've been in for more than a decade. And during that time, you know, banks found it difficult to make money mm-hmm. in the sense of low interest rates. Um, so you did see certain banks do certain things. Um, Perhaps that influenced SVB going for more long-dated sort of treasuries as opposed to short-dated treasuries in terms of looking for higher yields and and returns. But when interest rates are hiked, long-dated treasuries are more vulnerable to those interest rate hikes. Then you saw some of the other regional banks in the US, Signature Bank, um, Silvergate Capital, going after crypto firms. Mm -hmm looking for high returns from crypto. So essentially, this quote is referring to the fact that everybody was clambering to try and make money. Um, and now that interest rates are being hiked by central banks around the world, some of them are waking up with with, with some really bad hang- hangovers, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks. So I, I wanted to bring in a little bit, because this story is going to be up on the site very soon, about... Um, the rescue plan for First Republic in the U.S. So there's a lot of turmoil in the U.S., uh, you know, basically looking at these sort of small, medium-sized banks. Um, First Republic is a, a California-based pri- private bank, and so they probably had a lot of uh, tech entrepreneurs on on it on its books. And some of the commentary that, that's in the story we'll put out is, is exactly what you said. There was We've had a low interest rate, you know, environment for a very long time. 
interest rates went up and no one was prepared for it. So I speak to a few people in the article, but this is kind of my view as well. You know, what goes up comes, what goes down goes up. And what goes up goes down. I mean, yes, interest rates were low for a very long time. But there was no one in the risk department of some of these banks that kind of hedged against this? Apparently not. And it's interesting because we know about the repealing of certain provisions within the Dodd-Frank that pertain mm-hmm. to some of these banks, particularly SVB, which lobbied for some of those um, less stringent sort of uh, stress testing. You, 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 the U.S. is the home of deregulation, yes. <laughs> exactly. And I think, you know, I was speaking to somebody yesterday who was saying here in the U.K., in, in the Bank of England stress tests of systemically important banks, they would stress test that risk Mm -hmm. precisely, very high interest rates rising rapidly. So we can only assume that these banks weren't subject to those sort of stress tests. Also, we know, you know, in the case of SVB, they didn't have a chief risk officer and they weren't even hedging their um, long-dated treasuries against interest rate risk, which is pretty much a basic thing with long-dated treasuries Mm. that you know they're more susceptible to interest rate risk. So... As far as the other banks, I mean, I think there seems to be a contagion effect, doesn't there, Mm. in in regional banks in the US. And I think some of them were on these lists I saw of banks with very high levels of uninsured deposits. Mm -hmm. So they probably attracted a lot of deposits during the pandemic. People parked their money there thinking it was going to be safe. Um, which it is because the Fed have stepped in and, and guaranteed those deposits, even those above the insurance limit. <laughs> it's not a funny matter. I know, I know. But it's just, yeah, one after another. First Republic, I mean, it doesn't sound like we've heard the last of First Republic. Um, I know there's, there's a new, I know it, its share price dropped dramatically, but it rallied uh, today due to new reports uh, in, in the FT uh, that there was a, a new plan from the, uh, some of the 11 banks, uh, specifically J.P. Morgan, to to, uh, to shore it up. But it's interesting that, you know, a lot has been talked about the role of, of technology in, in some of these, uh, especially the bank run with Silicon Valley Bank. You know, they it supported the tech eco- ecosystem for so long, and then the, the community that it supported basically ate it and destroyed it. But you look at First Republic and the banking community rallied around to save it. So sort of very similar um, environments, sharp rise in interest rates, a lot of unsecured deposits, fear of a bank run or or deposits being taken out. Uh, First Republic got saved. Silicon Valley Bank is, well, I mean, the depositors were saved, but basically let left to die. Why do you think they stepped in with First Republic and not with SVB? Um, some of the commentary I've been hearing is, is um, you know, that uh, bank, banks can always lend each other the liquidity to help shore them up. Um, it, it is the contagion thing. I think there's a, there's a fear right at the moment with, with could there be a bank run? Because uh, First Republic was for high net worth individuals, so they probably have more than 250000 Deposited, love these people. Um, it deposited in the bank, so they're, they're, the fear that the deposits would, would be pulled was more um, uh, was was a was a bigger threat than you know a regular community bank or a regional bank um, with you know ordinary citizens in it. Does that suggest that they cared more about high net worth individuals than tech companies? I think it was more the the PR issue, the the contagion. I think it was more the 
you know, letting another bank like this fall is just is just not a good look. And it's and it wasn't that difficult for the eleven banks to, you know, eleven of these. You look at Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, City. They've got thirty billion. You know, <laughs> they've got lying around. I'm sure Jamie Dimon has thirty billion in a draw somewhere in his office. But the interesting thing about that I read is also that currently their deposits. So they're trying to so it doesn't necessarily help First Republic because they're going to be because obviously mm. they would it be they, it would be seen as liabilities on their balance sheet that mm. they would owe back to those banks. So I think they're trying to look at a, an alternative yeah, to make plan. it like an equity, almost like a, an equity stake, is it? Is that your understanding of it in the, in First Republic? Or yeah, that's my understanding. And But I'm, I'm, I, I, it'll probably be bought, I'm thinking, in the next few weeks. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, I think the events of the last few weeks have shown that it's not just about, you know, capital, looking at the tier one capital of these banks. It's also about confidence. And the minute that, you know, confidence is shaken, anything can happen, even to a bank that is supposedly well capitalized. Mm. It's very interesting. While this was going on, and this was this was not planned, you know, because we, as we know, the banker is known for the top, top 1,000 banks. And so we published the top 100 banks in the U.S. last week. How timely. <laughs> it was very good. But it was interesting at the end, uh, the end of the, the top uh, 100 U.S. banks. Um, however, the U.S. banking sector has been shaken this year by the recent collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Um, so uh, deposit flows uh, and deposit costs are likely to garner more focus this year as most banks experience a third straight quarter of net deposit outflows predicted Fitch in a January report. So it's uh, the U.S. is, uh, what is it, what is it, the U.S., the US what is it? the U.S. takes a bath and we take a shower? Oh, isn't it? If the, There's some phrase that I'm missing. The U.S. Missing. coughs and the rest of the world gets uh, yes, cold. Yes, <laughs> Well, this well is this just a U.S. thing? It's it's yeah because you know, after all, we have maybe stricter regulations on this side of the pond, and well, we'll see. Switzerland, not notwithstanding. I mean, I think the interesting thing about uninsured deposits, it's all right to be attracting these deposits into these banks. I think there's now a conversation around: well, do we need to raise the insurance? deposit limit and I think there's conversations going on in the US regarding that. Mm. Well it's only eighty five thousand here in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a lot. <laughs> when you consider that SVB UK had a lot of um, fintechs and startups that had literally millions parked there because they're fast growing. And no other bank would take their deposits. So it was interesting. So last week when we did this on LinkedIn Live, we talked about uh, this issue around the criticism of some of these tech companies not diversifying their their deposits. And and I made the comment that um, for a long time, Silicon Valley Bank was kind of the only bank that would take this business. So it's you know it's hard to look for another um, another another bank to bank with if that's the only bank. Um, but it was interesting. I spoke with a few startup founders uh, last week, and um, they made a comment. Yeah, it was really kind of a difficult weekend for us because we had all our money in Silicon Valley Bank. And, um, and th this came from a, a few startups. They said, we actually raised that diversification issue a while ago with our investors, and our investors told us to keep our money in Silicon Valley Bank. So there's something, I know the U.S. Justice Department is investigating the downfall of, of the bank, but it's interesting to see what was in it for the investors to tell their startups to keep their business in that bank. Wonder why. And I think also there was, in the U.K., a similar story. 
that these companies were told to keep that, to deposit that money with SVB UK. Um, are they now going to be told to deposit their money with HSBC? <laughs> well, yeah, well, right at the moment. <laughs> Which is still not really diversification, is no, it? No, no. Anyway, Wonder Watch, this is ongoing, and you can see all the stories on thebanker.com, and we will continue uh, reporting on all of these issues and big features and small features alike. Anita, should we talk about something else? Is there oh, anything else? If we must. Okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna I've got a, a personal story. This is one um, uh, a story that's on the website right now about uh, HSBC International, and they came out earlier this month with six promises to their international customers, which which includes things like the ability to open up a bank. If you move country, for example, if you're an expat or you're a foreign student, you can open up a bank account before you leave your home country, um, and you can uh, port your credit rating to other countries as well. Um, the reason why I take that, it not being an advertisement for HSBC, but um, as you notice by both of our accents, we were not born in the UK. Da, da, da. <laughs> um, so we both have experience, I'm sure, of trying to open up a bank account when you move country. And I, one of the questions I did ask HSBC when we did this story was, why did this take so long? Why is this so difficult? <laughs> I just wanted to rant. I just want to take advantage of ranting about this. I mean, it's much easier, isn't it, to open an account with e-money providers. I mean, they have their own issues, but equally, you can open an account with a, a selfie and, a, and your passport in, in literally seconds. Um, I'm assuming that this is not the case with HSBC. I'm, I'm assuming that you still According have to... them, it takes a few minutes now. Right. Wow. Okay. That's a big step for these banks. Yeah. They've never been able to do that. Mm. And and they still want paper documentation. I've even had them like opening a savings account. Can you send us, can you post us? Three, three you, months worth of utility bills. Yeah. 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 It's lovely. It's lovely stuff. Yeah. I've, I didn't, I didn't prepare you for this, but I know you've been talking about this. You mentioned opening up accounts with e-money institutions. Um, I know that there has been dear CEO letters that we're, we're working on this story as well to some of these e-money institutions about don't act like a bank if you're not a bank. Where do you see that going? I think it's interesting, isn't it? I think the lines are becoming blurred. I think to the average consumer, they're not probably aware that Revolut doesn't have a banking license because they offer banking-like Service. They do have one in Lithuania, just to be, just to give yes. them fair dues, but they do not have one in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's creating some blurring of lines. And I was speaking to somebody yesterday, um, and they were saying that um, also banking as a service is also kind of blurring those lines because you've you've got these companies providing bank accounts, cards, um, services that you would normally get from a bank. Is the average consumer do they know and you know, they're moving millions, you know, it could be moving large sums of money between these accounts, but client money is meant to be segregated in a separate bank account. But then, you know, what happens, they're not, that money is not protected by a compensation scheme if, if something were to happen. So just to, just on that note, because if you make, but someone asked a question live on our LinkedIn Live as well about this, and I know that there are people that separate, there's a difference between banking as a service and embedded finance, and um, but for the sake of argument, we you know we're talking about accessing financial services inside a, another a, another third party organization. Um, some people made a comment that banking as a service could have kind of solved the Silicon Valley Bank problem because they were embedded in that community. They were very good with dealing with startups. 
when they weren't very good was running a bank. <laughs> could, you know, could maybe they have like dealt dealt with the customers and then offered a banking as a service in the back end and that would have kind of salt, you know, have have the people actually know how to run a bank, run banks, and then the people who know how to deal with different communities deal with that. How would it how would it have helped if there was like a yeah. run on the bank? So the deposits, people were clambering. But maybe the the, the actual banking organization would have understood how to do an interest rate swap and not not got into this situation in the first place. <laughs> so they would have had the time to focus more on the risk management yep. side and let the banking as a service provider do all the mundane day-to-day stuff. Yeah. Right. No. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that's probably just those providers trying to get some airtime. Mm. Okay. All right. We're going to move on. And we're going to move on to our more traditionally non-banker story. This is not, no, this is a story. I'm not sure when it came out, but it kind of it, it hit me in the face when I was on the on the FT this morning. And this is um, 50 years of women trading at the London Stock Exchange. And the headline is perhaps she will no, will not spoil the atmosphere at all. So a little background for this before I, before I get commentary for you. Um, you know, of course, the LSE, the London Stock Exchange, hasn't had an open outcry floor since. Uh, I guess it officially closed in 1992, but it died a slow death over the 80s. I was actually reported on the launch of the uh, stock exchange trading system in 1997 at the old office on Threadneedle Street. So I remember waking up Saturday morning a bit hungover to go see their new, you know, baskets being matched on their uh, electronic trading system. And I also reported on uh, sets when it uh, collapsed, (laughs) which uh, which was, I think, due to uh, someone from the former... Arthur Anderson falling asleep, but you can read us if you ever want to Google me and look it up. It's somewhere in cyberspace that story I wrote. Um, but this is very interesting. So the story starts out with a lot of um, sort of commentary from women who've worked in the city of London for a while. But it kind of starts with a woman named Janet McCall, who was the first trader on the floor at the LSE at 1978. And just just a little bit, so so people younger than us can know, you know, 50 years ago, I'm 51. That's not that long ago. It's just a generation ago. What life was like for non-white, non-non <laughs> people who are not men uh, in the city of London? And um, this was a, an article about Janet that came out when she started trading at the LSE. Colleagues say that Janet is dark, if not sultry, shapely and single, very promising when it comes to business, tough. It also says she's a pretty brunette from Essex and does not have a special boyfriend yet. I'm just, I'm surprised in, in great Miss World fashion they didn't also do her, her measurements as well. Um, but <laughs> she wears Shalimar and has an hourglass figure. Anyway, Janet uh, went on to become a director at UBS, which has recently bought um, married a, a lovely smaller uh, Swiss bank that we talked about earlier. So, Anita, any, any, any nostalgia for the good old days when... People were actually barred from <laughs> access to these institutions. Um, well, I don't have any sort of. I do have an anecdote because I was doing a story a couple of months back about gender diversity, and it was mostly looking at gender diversity on bank boards um, and also the the C suite. And there was one woman I interviewed, um, and she was a former head of global equities at an investment manager that shall remain nameless. Um, and she, I imagine she was around in this period um, that that Je- Janet was. 
And she she said she had to put up with comments about her breasts being shouted out as she walked onto the trading floor and also being taken to sex bars in Asia. <laughs> so in Thailand somewhere, perhaps. So it's kind of, I, I would hope that we've moved on from mm. that. But in the story I did, looking at comparing banks with investment managers, banks were ahead in terms of their gender diversity balance compared mm. to investment managers. So I think there's still a long way to go in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still very much male-dominated for whatever reason. Um, I think also they tend to recruit from a very small pool of people um, and they need to perhaps, you know, try and diversify their recruitment base somehow because they're now going to a lot of companies and and sort of, you know, t- saying we're not going to invest in you if you're not sustainable. So obviously diversity is part of sustainability. There is evidence to suggest that a more diverse company generates better alpha, has oh, better yeah. financial results. I don't understand how many times we have to say this over and over again. I know. <laughs> Anyway, this goes out to all the dark, sultry, shapely, single people that work in financial services. Uh, We wish you luck because someday you might grow up to be a director at UBS. Lovely. Anyway, Anita, thank you so much for chatting with me on the Bank of Midweek. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at The Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on The Banker Podcasts to listen to more.